He'll be able to convince the world that up is down, down is up, black is white, white is black. He'll convince you to sell your mother to slavery and you'll think you're doing God a favor. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're continuing our study of Daniel chapter 7, which gives the account of a vision had by the prophet Daniel. In this vision, four great beasts are revealed. And as we begin today, Dr. Brogy recounts the timeline bringing us up to this vision. Would you take your Bibles this morning and turn to the prophet Daniel chapter 7? What the book of Revelation is to the New Testament, the prophet Daniel is to the Old Testament. In fact, you will soon discover, if you've not already, that without a proper understanding of Daniel, many of the New Testament passages that deal with future events, you won't be able to understand. And so Daniel fits in hand with the Revelation, the Olivet Discourse, and so many other critical passages. And so we're in the seventh chapter, which is one of the most comprehensive prophecies dealing with the nations of the world. We're not rushing through it. We're trying to understand it. But if you remember from our last time two weeks ago, we turned a corner when we came to Daniel chapter 7. We moved into the prophetic section of the book of Daniel. Chapters 1 through 6 are largely historical with a little bit of prophecy in them. Chapters 7 through 12 are almost entirely prophecy with a little bit of history in them. We saw that chapters 1 through 6 take place chronologically in the life of Daniel. However, chapters 7 through 12 do not. 7 through 12 fit in and around chapters 1 through 6. You can take 7 through 12 and lay it over 1 through 6. And if you don't understand that, it will become a little confusing to you. Now, last time when we introduced this chapter, I gave you an overview of it. Let me refresh our memories for the sake of those who are new, but also to cement some of these truths in our own hearts. The first three verses really introduce us to the vision. We find an introduction to the vision. Then, beginning in verse 4, which we started last time, through verse 14, we find the information that is found in the vision. And then when you come to verse 15, all the way through the end of the chapter, we find the interpretation of the vision. And I really want you to get that, because again, if you can get a hold on this chapter, it's going to open up so many other passages in the Word of God to you. So let's review the context of what we've covered so far. First, the introduction to the vision. And if you remember, we looked at two things, when Daniel dreamed and the circumstances around what Daniel dreamed. First, we we're introduced to the time when Daniel dreamed in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Again, going back to what we just discussed, chapters 7 through 12 fit in and around chapters 1 through 6. You can see on this diagram, the book opens with the Babylonian captivity where Daniel and his three friends, we learn they're carried away. Uh, then in the second chapter, we saw Nebuchadnezzar's dream of these coming kingdoms, a very important dream. And we saw Daniel, who is used of God to interpret it. In the third chapter... This uh, big-headed man uh, builds an image 
no doubt exalting his own kingdom as the head of gold. And we studied Nebuchadnezzar's image. And then in the fourth chapter, we saw how God humbled him and we saw his pride. And I believe that in the mercy of God, he was converted and I will meet him in heaven someday. Now, between chapters four and five, between Nebuchadnezzar's pride and the fall of Babylon, you find chapters seven through eight, the chapter we're in today, the time of the Gentiles, in chapter 8, the ram and the he-goat vision. Uh, after chapter 5, after the Babylonian fall to the Medo-Persian Empire, in between chapter 6, before Daniel in the lion's den, when he's an old man, remember in chapter 1, he's a teenager. When you come to chapter 6, he's around 85, 90 years of age. But between chapters 5 and 6, you have one of the most important prophecies in all of the Word of God. The 70 weeks prophecy. We'll probably spend three weeks just on three or four verses. Then um, after chapter 6, we're going to come to what I call the dark side in the 10th chapter. You're going to see what is going on in the invisible realm. And when you see it, you'll never view the news in the same way. You will see how the prince of the power of the air is really at work. And then finally, Chapters 11 through 12 serve as a conclusion. Now, it happens here in the first year of Belshazzar, this particular vision. That tells you it happened after the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar and before the overthrow of Babylon in the fifth chapter by the Medo-Persians. Remember Belshazzar? He was the one who saw the hand on the wall. Remember him? And Daniel came in and interpreted it. And that night, Darius the Mede came in and overthrew Babylon. Now, Belshazzar, we know, ruled for 15 years. And so the vision happened about 14 years before the handwriting on the wall, which would make Daniel about 65 years of age. So we have a very firm date. Hopefully, you wrote it out on your margin. Uh, it's 553 B.C. Now, that's the time when the vision uh, took place. In addition, we looked at the circumstances of what Daniel dreamed, verses 2 and 3. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now, remember, Daniel is the first apocalyptic writer in the Bible, and the term apocalyptic implies symbols and signs. And so Daniel has a dream where he saw in the dream certain symbols. We saw the distinction between a dream and a vision. A dream is done when you are asleep. A vision is when you are awake, but it's like you are asleep. And both happened while he was on his bed. And in this dream, in these multiple visions... He has given three clear pictures. First, we studied the symbolism of the sea. Verse 2, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And so letting Scripture interpret Scripture, we saw the sea was not literally the Mediterranean Sea, most often referred to as the great sea in the Bible. But in this case, it's a symbolic sea. And uh, it represents the mass of humanity. Uh, if you weren't here, you might want to go back where we gave the biblical support for that. Secondly, we saw the working of the wind. I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Well, what do the four winds stand for? Well, we learn from Scripture that winds refer to the four points of the compass, 
and the blowing and the agitation of this sea where literally the devil himself blows his fiery, hot, evil breath over the mass of humanity, and up comes four literal kings, four literal kingdoms. In addition, we are told about the birth of the beasts in verse 3. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. So it's out of this turmoil, out of this unrest, that four great beasts were coming up out of the sea. So pictured here in Daniel's dream are four beasts who are spawned in this sea of humanity. We use it metaphorically too. We say, what a sea of people. And out of it crawl not literal beasts, but because of what we read in verse 17, we know it's a symbol. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. So out of this seething, pulsating mass of humanity, disturbed by the four winds of the four corners of the earth, come four great kingdoms. And if you were here in our study of Daniel chapter 2, then you will remember these four empires. Now that was the introduction to the vision. Then we began last time to look at the information in the vision. Uh, we examined the five specific truths. First, he tells us something about the nature of the nations. And so as pictured here, he gives us four nations. The first that is pictured by a lion, the lion of Babylon. And so to this day, you associate Babylon with a lion. If you've ever seen the gates of Istar that Daniel would have visually walked by on a daily basis. They're in a museum. They're in London. They're covered with lions. I showed you a picture some weeks ago. In addition, in verse 6, this kingdom, or verse 5, is followed by the bare nature of Medo-Persia. And we saw the significance of this lopsided kingdom and the three ribs in its mouth. Then this was followed by the leopard nature of Greece, a leopard being an extremely fast animal, one of the fastest on the planet, and how with lightning speed, Alexander the Great conquered the world. And then in verse 7, the brutal nature of Rome. This is all prophetic, and it all happens just as God said. He's not a historian. He's not recording after the fact. He's recording before the fact because God knows the future. And then we saw this fourth empire, of course, that was different. And so he doesn't really have an animal to describe this fourth kingdom, this fourth beast, because no animal adequately expresses it. However, John takes a crack at it in the Revelation. Let me read to you Revelation 13.2, which you should have out in the margin. This fourth kingdom is really a composite of all the other kingdoms, and that's why there's no single beast to represent it. And the beast, which I saw was like a leopard. We've already studied him. And his feet were like those of a bear. We saw him. And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. We've discussed him as well. And the dragon gave him power in his throne in great authority. So this beast is giving power and authority by the dragon who is defined in the revelation as Satan himself. So Daniel says that this fourth beast in verse 7 was dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. It had large teeth of iron. Furthermore, he said it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And then he notes for us here in verse 7 that it was different from all the other beasts that were before it. 
This empire is different because unlike the other empires that had a time frame in which they came and gone, this fourth empire extends over a long period of time. Each of the three succeeding empires were conquered. Rome was never conquered. It just fell apart into different pieces. But someday, God will bring some of those pieces back together, and from that compilation of nations will come Antichrist. So we asked and answered a very important question. Did Rome ever have ten toes, like described in the image of Daniel 2, or did it ever have ten horns, which this chapter tells us signifies ten kings? No, it never did. History never records that. And that's why Daniel is telling us that this kingdom was different from all the beasts that were before it. I want you to see that what he is describing here, it's not really a fifth kingdom. It's the fourth kingdom coming back to life, but it's out there in the future. It's the most vicious of all these kingdoms. And we will see at the end of this vision that he is so shaken by it, he is left pale because it is so different from all the rest. Now remember, we studied it last time, that oftentimes in the Bible, in a single verse, there can be a gap of time found in the verse. So when you read the Old Testament, you will find sometimes in one verse, two portraits of the Messiah. And later on, I will show you why God did that. It's very important. But think of it in this way. Suppose you have a mountain peak here and a mountain peak here, and you're looking at it from this perspective. All you can see is two mountain peaks. And there are two mountain peaks that are pictured concerning Messiah. One is he's the suffering servant who would be pierced through for our iniquity, who would come and die in horror upon a brutal Roman cross. The other picture is him as a reigning sovereign Lord. But what you don't see is that between these two mountain peaks is a valley. And we call that valley the church age. It was there in the Old Testament, but it was hidden. And so Paul said it was his privilege in Ephesians 3 to unfold this mystery, the church that was hidden in the Old Testament. And so very often, like we looked at last time from Isaiah chapter 9, you find two pictures of Messiah, one where a baby is born, the other where the governments of the world will rest upon his shoulders. Let me give you another example. I want you to see this today. Hold your finger here. Turn to the left, Isaiah 61. You need a Bible. Not everything is on slides. Now, the slides are for our visitors because 99% of the visitors tell me that when they come here, this is the first church they needed a Bible. And so we provide the slides for them. I'm glad you guys got laptops and you know, tablets and everything else, but you need a paper Bible to mark it up, to circle things, to write notes out in the margins. So bring one, if you will. If you need one, talk to me. Isaiah chapter 61. Find that. Hold your finger there. Don't lose it. You get your two fingers in two places now. And go to Luke chapter 4 for a moment. Luke chapter 4. We're going to read Isaiah 61 first, and then we will compare it to what we read in Luke chapter 4. In these two passages, we find a good example where in one verse of Scripture, a prophecy will leap over hundreds of years, even millennia. And again, the Old Testament prophets would often lump together, sometimes in the same verse or paragraph, both comings of the Messiah. Now, follow along Isaiah 61 and verse 1. We read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. 
because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners. Then verse 2 says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Okay, having read that, keep your finger there. Go to Luke chapter 4 for a moment. Luke 4. You remember Luke records the start of Christ's ministry when he was there in his hometown. Wasn't received very well. They brought him to a cliff. If you've been to Israel, you can go to that very cliff. There's only one place that can fit the bill there in Nazareth, and they literally want to throw him off of it. Of course, it's not his time to die. His power emanates from his body, and he walks through the crowd. But if you remember on one occasion, he's in the synagogue, and he reads a messianic passage. He's handed the scroll. The scroll of Isaiah is a big scroll. Remember, there's no chapter verse divisions. It's a thick scroll, one of the biggest in the Old Testament. And he finds the passage. How can he find it so quick? Because he knows the Word of God. He knows it's 45 turns or whatever. He knows the thickness. He knows right where it is because he studied the Scriptures. Let's pick it up in verse 17 of Luke 4. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. See the change of typeset? If you're new to the Bible, that means it's an Old Testament quotation. And it's from the text we just read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then He sat down handed the scroll to the attendant, and he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it had. But why didn't he quote the entire verse? Why did he stop right in the middle of Isaiah 61 and verse 2? Notice it says he, he came to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stopped in the middle of the verse without reading the second half of Isaiah 61b about God's vengeance to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. He stopped for the simple reason that the second half would not be fulfilled until his second coming. And so go back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel wants us to know here in verse 7 that this fourth empire was different from all the beasts that were before it. It was different in that unlike the other empires that had come and gone, this fourth empire will extend over a long period of time. This fourth empire will end with the second coming of Christ. And so in this passage, in these verses, there's a big gap of time between the beginning of the fourth kingdom and the end of this fourth kingdom. Look at verse 7. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. That part of the prophecy all happened in the early part of the Roman Empire. But look at the rest of the verse. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. That part has never happened. Rome never had ten horns. Yet we are going to see that he is now looking way down the corridors of time because look in verse 8, we're going to read of this coming Antichrist. In verse 9, of the Ancient of Days. In verse 13, of the appearing of the Son of Man where his kingdom is established. 
So this fourth kingdom, unlike Rome in its early days, had ten toes, ten horns, ten kings. And unlike this fourth empire that had at its origin two legs of iron representing the eastern and western segments of the empire prophesied ever before it happened in this final form there are two feet representing ten toes and the feet if you remember were made according to Daniel 2 of both iron and clay iron and clay do not mix these ten nations are distinct, yet they will be unified, and in that sense, they will have some iron strength. Now, we're going to discuss when we come to the Revelation after Daniel next fall, I suspect we will be there. When we come to the Revelation, we are going to see that there is a ten-nation kingdom identical to what Daniel speaks of, that Revelation 13 speaks of. What is this ten-nation kingdom? Well, hold on to your seats. We'll come to it, all right? Now, for the, for the meantime, let me just say, as Daniel says in the 12th chapter, this will take place in the latter days. We know that much. During the time of the Great Tribulation, there will be a ten-nation confederacy from among whom will come Antichrist. Now, we finished last time with verse 8 where we studied the advent of the Antichrist. Let's review it briefly. Verse 8, while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. Behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So here we have this ruler, and he's a take-charge kind of guy. There are many names given to him in Scripture, as you can see on the slide. He's called the King of Fierce Countenance in Daniel 8. He's called the Little Horn. He's called the Prince who is to come. He's called a despicable person. He's called the Willful King. He's called in Zechariah the Prophet the, a foolish shepherd, the worthless shepherd. He's called the Beast in Revelation 11, Revelation 19. He's called the Man of Lawlessness, the Son of Perdition. But most of you know him by his most popular name, used only once in the Bible by John in 1 John 2, the Antichrist. Now, from verse 8, we learn several things about this coming ruler. You're going to learn more about the Antichrist and the prophet Daniel than any other book in the Bible. The Revelation will add some important details but in the 8th chapter and then in the 11th chapter, we're going to learn so much about this person. But first we studied something about his origin in verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. Now I want you to notice that it is out of these ten nations that we are introduced to an 11th horn by which the Antichrist will come. A horn, if you remember, Daniel tells us in this chapter, represents a king. And so when we're talking about a little horn who comes up among these kings, he's talking about another king who will suddenly come to the forefront. And this king, this little horn, is not a part of this ten-nation confederation. The Hebrew is very specific. He comes up among this ten-nation confederation. Here's a picture of that little horn. Ha, ha, ha. So out of these ten kings that will rule simultaneously, one will come, he'll uproot three others, and he will dominate the world. So that's his origin. Then we studied his obscurity. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. He's referred to as a little one. 
So we have this leader who starts rather diminutively. He is a little horn, but this little horn who starts small is going to become a big shot of sorts. He has a very insignificant beginning. In fact, there are three kings who think they can challenge him. Three presidents, three prime ministers, whatever they are in that day. And so he's going to explain it to them a little bit clearer. And he will uproot them. And as we will see next week from verse 20, he will become the greatest of them all. People will be surprised. This man who will come to the forefront, one whom they never would have thought of, this little horn. We also studied last time his observation. Do you remember that in verse 8? This horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man. He may seem small, but he is wise in the world's perspective. And we studied some verses where eyes in Scripture describe insight, intelligence, prudence. This antichrist is characterized by an unusual ability. He is shrewd. He is knowledgeable. He will be able to solve problems that no one else will be able to solve. But of course, if you've read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Revelation 13, the reason is it's because he has supernatural power from the devil himself. Then we learn something about his oratory. Do you remember that? Verse 8, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Friend, you talk about an orator. You talk about a man with a mouth. He's talking about a man who can capture audiences, a person who can inflame the passions of people, a person And he's best described when you put 8 and 11 together of this book with a big mouth. He's a big-mouthed guy. I don't know how else to describe him. He's a man of great boasts. He'll be able to convince the world that up is down, down is up, black is white, white is black. He'll convince you to sell your mother to slavery, and you'll think you're doing God a favor. If it were possible, Jesus said he would deceive even the elect. How could so many people be captivated by one individual, such that they would purpose to do so much wrong and think that they were being righteous? There have been many precursors to the Antichrist in history, so we shouldn't be surprised at that. But at the same time, we have to purpose to keep our eye on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, so that we won't be misled. Tomorrow we'll pick up where we left off as we continue our message entitled, The Consummation of Time. To listen to this or any of the messages in the Daniel series, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN9. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our study of Daniel and Search the Scriptures.